Good morning. I'd like to ask you to turn with me to the book of Exodus chapter 20 for our sermon, this text this morning. We have a goodly number of visitors here today and we welcome you. It is not our habit to embarrassingly recognize you in front of everybody, but should time permit after church, would love to make your acquaintance in the foyer. My name is Matt. I'm the senior pastor at the church. I've been here since 2001 and it is a privilege and a joy to come together for worship each Lord's Day. What I have come to understand after 21 years of this is that nobody gets here to worship by accident. God's sovereign hand is upon you graciously to bring you into a house of worship to hear God's Word. And each time we hear God's Word, it could very well be our last until we meet Him. And so we come together to meet with Him. As my seminary said, we we meet to part and part to meet, never assured of tomorrow, but always thankful for today. As we come to this classic text of Scripture in Exodus 20 today, we're going to be looking at the second table of the law, which may easily be summarized with the sermon title, Love Thy Neighbor, Love Thy Neighbor. And the people of God, 3,500 years ago, heard the very voice of God, and it frightened them at first. They asked for Moses to mediate because they knew they needed a mediator. And today, we need to hear the voice of God. We need His help. I seldom introduce two sermons in a row the same way. However, last week and this week go together as the first and the second table of the law, the so-called Ten Commandments or the Decalogue. You may recall from last week, if you were able to be here, that the first table of the law pertains to the worship of God, the first four commandments. Jesus summarized that first table with, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. They're very simply, love the Lord your God with everything you have. That's the summary of the first table of the law. Only God, no images graven, no misusage of His name in vain, and proper Sabbath worship. When giving an answer to the tricky question that the lawyer asked Jesus about what the summary of the moral law is of our text today in Exodus, he said that the second great commandment is like the first. And he cited from Leviticus and said that you should love your neighbor as yourself. And that is, indeed, a great commandment for us to ponder today as a summary statement for all that is included in the second table of the law in Exodus chapter 20, verses 12 and following. As much as we are incapable of completely fulfilling the moral law, and as much as we need a Savior for that, we are still right to aspire to live by the moral law. This way of relating with one another remains the gold standard by which healthy communities are allowed to thrive. Loving your neighbor is not an antiquated command. It's quite practical for us right now. The Apostle Paul himself brought it together in Romans 13, when he talked about the oughtness that we owe to one another in loving one another. We owe one another a debt of love, he said. <clears throat> but therein lies the problem. We think we know how to define it, love. And often, we mess up because we misdefine love. Our definitions of love are too often sentimental or emotional and not grounded in morality and truth and eternality. Paul points his statements on moral love at believers and urges them to pursue holiness in this way. Make no provision for the flesh, for the day is nearer now than when you first believed. In fact, Romans 13 might be worth just reading to you from the onset before we read Exodus. Romans 13, 8-10 says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. That will become important as we go along. For the commandments, quoting the second table of the law, you shall not commit adultery, shall not murder, shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. But again, we want to know what love is. And our sentimental and sometimes oversimplified definitions of love do not take proper account of the second table of the law that that love is summarizing. So as you hear those exact words today from Exodus 20, realize the relevancy, the applicability, and the bindingness of moral law that is not simply spoken in Exodus 20 and reiterated by the apostles and Jesus, but also grounded in creation 
itself. There are ten commandments. We'll take the fifth to the tenth, fifth to the tenth commandment today, or the latter sixth. And without further ado, why don't we read God's word from Exodus twenty, verses twelve and following? I should also say here, as we're beginning to read this, that we'll go past the tenth commandment and into the accounts just after the giving of these of these commandments that are at the end of Exodus 20, and they're worth listening to, laws about altars, about worship. Now hear the word of the Lord from Exodus 20, beginning in verse 12. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. But you you shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings, and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. This is the word of the Lord, and we praise God for it. Exodus 20, 12 to 16, love your neighbor as yourself, and we're going to see it in three parts. We're going to see love your neighbor in what you do, love your neighbor in what you say, and love your neighbor in what you think. What you do, what you say, and what you think. Firstly, love your neighbor in what you do. Look again at verses 12 to 15. They're very simple to read and straightforward to read. They won't take long if you look back over them. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. Commandments number 5, 6, 7, and 8 comprise this first exhortation to love your neighbor as yourself in what you do. In what you do. Honor your parents, but then honor life and marriage and personal property. The latter are stated in the negative, but I'm restating them in the positive. That is, honor life and marriage and personal property. I restate them in the positive for ease of learning, to see how they fit together. These are things you do. They're deeds. They're practical. Honor your parents. Honor life. Honor marriage. Honor personal property. Let's take those on their parts. Think about honoring parents for a moment. Family is central to any healthy community. Honor or respecting mother and father, that's where love starts. It starts local. Love starts most local. It really starts in your living room. Well, what if my mom and dad adopted me, you might ask? Then this still applies. Those that care for you and love you. On the frontier, there were lots of adoptions because of early times of death for parents. And there were adoptions of necessity, but they were no less loving. And God is good to us through adoption, even making his salvation known to each of us who are being saved by adopting us into God's family. What a glorious institution. Far from being born into it, that is salvation, you must be reborn into it. You must be born again. None of us can track our physical lineage to salvation. We track it to our sin, and we track our spiritually being born again to our wonderful Savior, Jesus. I wonder if you'd receive this gospel this morning, if you haven't already, the gospel of Christ, who would love to adopt you into his family through faith. You will find God to be a good, good father. For you that are adopted, love 
is what God has shown you. Love, love, love. For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so we should love and not resent our parents. What if your mom and dad aren't known to you very much, or maybe not at all? These are the kinds of questions that come to mind when we consider a command like honor or maybe more plainly respect thy father and thy mother. I would say to you that by virtue of the fact that you're sitting here today, someone has provided some care for you and that it is right for you to thank God for your gift of life even if you cannot commend the way of life of your earliest parents. Someone has sustained you, and gratitude is central to the worship of God. And so we call you to gratitude this morning in light of this command. Even though you cannot call evil actions good, the Bible says in Isaiah, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And you can't follow bad parents into sin. You should never follow an authority figure into sin. But you can still respect the uh, office of parent, the authority of a parent. I think there's something to the idea of authority here. And because of the fact that everybody under the sun is battling some kind of sinus things, I have to stop and take a drink a little bit here. I don't normally, but the reality is my throat's scratchy. So I'm going to do that occasionally just to keep it hydrated as we go through the sermon. I think this is a, an interest of authority. And tough case makes bad law. If you think back to what I just said, I tried to identify some areas in which maybe some of you in my hearing uh, sort of have some ill feelings or maybe, some, maybe rightly ill feelings toward your parents of origin, your biological parents. Um, but I wanted to say to you today that because of God's great grace to us, in allowing us to be here and providing salvation for us, we don't need the tough cases to result in our making a new and bad law. We should respect rather than disrespect authority on the main. We should not joke around about putting our parents in a home when they're old, kicking them to the curb. Those are difficult decisions, and they should be taken with weightiness when the time comes. But you can tell a lot about what people really believe based on the respect or the disrespect that they give to the least of these, and that includes the oldest. This means we're to care for and not euthanize our aged. The Mosaic Covenant attached a promise to this positive command, honor thy father and thy mother, honor your parents. Christians should never validate a fabrication of the creation institution. It's always and ever been a mom and a dad that children are birthed to and should seek to respect all the days of their lives. We should seek as Christians, as far as we're able, to connect procreation as closely as possible to the marital acts between a man and a woman. This is pre-political. This is about creation. And to strive otherwise is to strive against the Almighty. And you do not want to do that. When Ephesians picks up on this command from Exodus, there's a further exhortation for fathers to not, quote, exasperate their children, end quote. Which means that it is possible for a parent to exasperate their child. How might that be? How might parents exasperate their children? I leave it to you to think about on the main, but a few possible answers would be inconsistency in parenting. Ups and downs and ups and downs. The children never know what to think. They're always on pins and needles. Or double standards. You know, one day one thing's right, the next thing that thing's wrong. There's no consistency. Or taking your frustration out on your kids. We've all done that, but it's always sin. And we should repent of that sin. And we should repent in front of our children, too, that they might learn how to repent. Son, I'm sorry. I overreacted. Honey, I'm sorry. I used harsh words. It was totally unnecessary. I'm sorry about that. And if you actually believe what Ephesians says about husband and wife too, some of you guys need to say to your wife, I'm sorry. The way I spoke was wrong. What I said was wrong. Humble yourself before the Lord. God opposes the pride. 
faithful, but he gives grace to the humble. Specifically about children, though, we shouldn't expect maturity beyond the littlest years, beyond the, the years of the littlest. We shouldn't expect them to have a maturity that's beyond them. We should, we should have patience with where they are. Would a parent today here reckon in their minds to repent of the sin of exasperating their children today and to put an actionable on that after today's service? I hope that maybe someone would. Because it's a two-way street, that is, honoring parents and parents acting honorably. But it doesn't diminish in any way the importance of this institution of marriage and also the life that comes from it. And I think that has something to do with the command not to murder. That is, in the positive, do honor life. This is not rightly stated as thou shalt not kill. It would better say thou shalt not murder. It's a misreading to talk of it as killing. Murder is always killing, but killing is not always murder. There are commands to take life, and those commands in Scripture do not violate or abrogate the sixth commandment, do not murder. This would include the rightful usage of the death penalty and killing during just wars. When we lose the category of rightful killing, we tend to promote side-by-side wrongful murder. In our thinking, we start to think that we know better than God does. That's exactly what we've exported and done in the taking of the life of the littlest ones. We should treasure the lives in the womb. We should not exasperate those children either. And we should repent where our rhetoric or our deeds, in this case, have been to the contrary. It is right for us, with regard to Christianity and morals, to define love as not only to the eldest, but also to the least. Murder is wrongful death. And we don't fix another problem by starting a, a different problem. We have to solve each problem at a time. And never shall we see a conceived child as a problem. Love of your neighbor starts in your living room and very, very close to home in those wombs of nurture. The Lord has said so. Do like this. And honor your parents and honor life. And also honor marriage. You can begin to see how these commands flow together, one to the other, almost as if God gave them to us, right? It's because He did. One of the reasons that there's so much trauma around pregnancies is because of how we have, and I say we because judgment begins in the household of God. I'm talking to Christians. It's low-hanging fruit to take shots at the culture. I'm talking about us. This is a sermon to Christians, by Christians, for Christians. And one of the reasons that there's been so much crisis around pregnancies is because of how we have capitulated and dishonored marriage. We must start with definitions. Definitions matter, and God sanctioned marriage. God sanctioned marriage in creation, not with polyamory or bestiality. He specifically sanctioned marriage in that garden temple sanctuary when God himself provided over it with his creation of one man made from man, a man and a woman, and he brought them together. And that has been frustrated since the fall of the first married couple, Adam and Eve. But frustration is not a reason to give up on the very good moral commands of God, now is it? Frustration is everywhere that sin is, but God gives us grace. And just as God presided in creation over that marriage, even east of Eden, God sees and gives weight to our marriages under Him. We should not trust in chariots and horses to fix this one for us. Moral insanity out there does not permit it in here. God has said marriage matters, and we must treat it that way. Adultery is acting out in, in relations outside of the marriage union, or as Hebrew, the author of Hebrews calls it, the marriage bed. With anyone, that is, that you are not in a marital covenant with in the eyes of God and of the community. If you break commandment 7, you're likely heading headlong into problems in commandments 6 and 5 too. Hebrews 13.4 is worth reading on this point. It says, 
let marriage be held in honor among all. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Honor it. The dishonoring of marriage would therefore be adultery. It says here also, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. So Hebrews expands it out into porneia and fornication and not simply a flat definition of adultery and periods of betrothalment. And Hebrews 13 continues loosely referencing the importance of the second table of the law when it says in Hebrews 13.5 something well of private property and ownership. It says, keep your life free from the love of money. And what causes a person to, to be entangled in a love of money, which is the root of all evil? But discontentment. As I take a drink, look at the middle part of that verse. <clears throat> what is the cause of a love of money? It's discontentment. The command there is to be content with what you have, not with what you wish you had. For why? Because God promises to never leave you or forsake you. And because God will never leave you nor forsake you, that is enough. Love of money is the root of all evil. Honoring private property is the emphasis of this commandment. We should not take so much as a piece of candy that doesn't belong to us. The privilege of private property is central to a healthy community, and that's what we want. We want a healthy and vibrant community. Resentment of what another has to the point of stealing is a violation of this, the Eighth Commandment. Do not steal. Instead, do honor private property. Love your neighbor as yourself in what you do. I see too much discontentment. Stealing will dovetail with coveting, too, when we look at the last commandment here in a moment. But I pray we would be a people that's free from a love of money. Listen to what James Montgomery Boyce wrote about this command in his sermon commentary. He said, How do we steal? Answer, We steal when we take what is not lawfully or ethically ours to take. And not just breaking into someone's house to take his possessions. We steal from an employer when we waste time or do not produce the best work of which we are capable we steal when we waste our employer's raw products. If we run a business, we steal when we overcharge for our products just because the market will bear it. Or if we sell an inferior product at normal cost. We steal when we do not repay a loan. Or when we repay it late. We steal when we cheat on our taxes. We steal from God when we fail to worship Him, robbing Him of honor and the glory which belong to him alone. And who is sufficient for these things, right? None of us. But we should begin by repenting for where we have stolen and see the thickness of our sin. For Jesus, our Savior, he never misused goods or stole. He was the perfect law keeper. Matthew seven twelve, the so referred to as golden rule, states this in the positive the positive side of this command is we ought to do everything we can to help other people and to protect their possessions because in everything, do unto others what you would have them do to you. Do unto others what you would have them do to you. And that's the center of love thy neighbor as thyself, right? It's the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. And it sounds sentimental until you get real practical about it in some of these ways. So honor parents in life and marriage and private property. That is... Loving your neighbor in what you do. And so next, let's define love by loving your neighbor with what you say. Secondly, love your neighbor in what you say. And I appeal really to one verse, although we will put a few more in there from Exodus 20. But look at just Exodus 20.16. Just the one verse. Love your neighbor in what you say. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. If you let your eyes glance up at verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The Lord does not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. These are sins of statement. They're sins of words, misusing words. 
And you could rightly build an entire theology of words from Exodus 20. God spoke to them from heaven. In last week's sermon, we looked at Genesis 1 about the number of times that God spoke, and it was so. He creates by words, and He recreates by words, and Jesus is the Word, the divine Logos. And so we could talk about words. I refrain from doing that, but within the second point, we have to say a few words about words, because your words matter. What you say matters. Sticks and stones can break your bones, but words hurt even worse. Perhaps you've heard that one. They say, words don't even hurt me, but actually, they can hurt even worse. Words are not indifferent. They're moral actions. What you say matters in many ways as much as what you do. You should speak truly, not only about God, not taking His name in vain, but also about your neighbor, the second table of the law, not taking their name in vain. 1 Corinthians 6 gets into this also when it talks about lawsuits and effective relationships amongst believers. And if you think forward to the crucifixion of Jesus and just prior to it, His trial, it took false witness bearing, false witnesses to prosecute Jesus in that shadowy, showy, unsavory trial that happened under the cover of the night when Jesus was betrayed. So Jesus was not immune to the effects of bearing false witness. He was the victim of the brokenness of this commandment. Number nine, we should be the people who have our yeses be yes and our noes be no. We are not to misspeak or to overspeak, but so many of us do, and we need help for where we've spoken falsely and denigrated our neighbor. I think a helpful way to think about what you say to your neighbor about one another is to think of it in two terms, truth and reputation. Think about truth. Love of your family and your friends is being truthful about them. The Bible says, Woe to him who calls good evil and evil good. I quoted Isaiah that way just a little bit earlier. And the Bible urges us to come and reason together in Isaiah. James says that wisdom from heaven above is, quote, open to reason. Sound reasoning. Categories for reason are only opened up when Christians teach true truth. Charles Spurgeon quipped, Long ago I ceased to count heads. Truth is usually in the minority in this evil world. Truth may be in the minority, but that does not mean that we should speak anything less than the truth. It is unloving to call evil good. How much children need an honorable mom and dad, a shot at life, a witness of equitable earning, and truly spoken words. J.C. Ryle wrote this, Where there is grace, there will be conflict. The battle lines have been drawn. The believer is a soldier. There is no holiness without a warfare. Saved souls will always be found to have fought a fight. Truth, but also zealousness for the reputation of one another. So it's not just a matter of saying true things, but we also must be zealous for the reputation of one another because we are sinners. The Bible says God is jealous for you in Exodus 20. And that word could also be translated as zealous for you. He is zealous for you and for your reputation. And so you should be, according to the second table of the law, zealous for the reputation of one another. And I ask you a simple question this morning. Are you typically zealous to uphold the reputation of your brother and sister in Christ? Sometimes you do that as one singer saying when you say it best when you say nothing at all. Sometimes the best way to uphold the reputation of your neighbor is to just simply not talk. Uh, if you don't know about a thing or you can't speak without sinning, as one brother mentioned this week, just say, I don't know about that. I couldn't speak to that. Ask yourself when you're in a conversation that bends toward threatening the reputation of another is this conversation good? Is it helpful? Words can tear down reputations that are hard to rebuild. Are you a person that's typically quick to jump on that bandwagon? Do you get some kind of a codependent fix off of running down a neighbor? Repent of it and ask yourself in each ensuing conversation, is this conversation loving my brother or my sister? 
Or is it actually not loving them at all? Is it quite hateful toward my brother and my sister? Because the second, command, the second great commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. Would you want yourself talked about this way? Even if you messed up, would you want your reputation so unzealously defended? Tell the truth and protect reputations and speak every word in God's hearing. Consider Exodus 20. Let your eyes go back to your page again and look at verses 22 to 26. I want to make a few observations about loving your neighbor and what you say. The text says, and I'm just going to read it again. It says in verse 22, And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourself that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice it on your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, pursuing peace, your sheep and your oxen in every place where I cause my name, so this is about publishing the divine name, that's the theme of Exodus, to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If it says, if you make an altar of stone, you shall not build it with hewn stones. Some think that's because they used those as certain stones for weapons of warfare, and so that your tool that you use on it would profane it. That's one, one way of looking at it. It was 3,500 years ago. I'm not entirely sure. But there are specifics about worship. That's what's important. It says in verse 26, And you shall not go up by steps to my altar. Later in Exodus 28, there's going to be talking about undergarments for the priests. It says here, though, the reason for that initial command was so that your nakedness be not exposed. So modesty, since rebellion in Eden and expulsion from Eden has been a thing. This, there's, it's, modesty is very important. To, we should not draw attention away from the right worship of God. And we should not act in such a manner that our Actions would draw attention away from what's good for our neighbor. And we also should not speak that way. More to the second point. Because this text itself tells us that we are to be pursuant of peace or peace offerings. It's part of the worship of God throughout. We don't pursue peace well whenever we are running down our neighbors. So we should seek not to do that. Truly there is a place for critical thought, and there is a place to say, as they say, call a spade a spade. But our life patterns, really, not the tough cases, is what we're talking about here. God has talked to us by His Word, and so what we say with words matters. It matters to one another, it matters to Him, it matters about Him. So if you're cut to the heart about how you have a habit of talking about one another, you can hardly get out of the living room before the living room is used as an act of slander against the absent brother or sister's reputation, I would urge you this very time to repent. It's good to repent. That times of refreshing may come over your soul, Acts chapter 3 says. And learn, beginning today, to be zealous for one another's reputation. The church will never be stronger than its weakest link when it comes to being zealous to uphold the reputation of sinful brothers and sisters. I mean, let's just be real. We deserve to have our reputations run down from time to time. But aren't you glad that the Lord doesn't give you what you deserve? So go and say likewise. Don't give your neighbor what they deserve. Protect the weaker and the less mature ones from themselves. Even by what you don't say. Or what you stay present for. God knows. He's able to sort things out. You, you don't have to right every perceived wrong verbally. It's for the glory of a believer to overlook a wrong, Scripture says. So let's give more grace as we've received so much grace. And let's consider the second point now in the books. Love your neighbor as yourself in what you say. Thirdly, love your neighbor as yourself in what you think. Well, if this sermon hasn't duly offended all of us yet, now it most certainly will. I mean, we've moved from the most practical what you do to a little bit more inner and personal, what comes out of your mouth, and how we're going to talk about your very thoughts. But that's exactly where our Lord Jesus takes the second table of the law whenever he talks about it in his so-called Sermon on the Mount. He takes it to the heart of the matter. He takes it to the very core of thinking and being. Listen afresh to Exodus twenty seventeen. It says, you shall not covet your neighbors, and then it gives this list of things that you're not to covet. More on that in a moment. 
And then, in verses 18 to 21, all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain. They saw it smoking. The people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. They said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. And then in verse 20, Moses said to the people, do not fear. And why is that? And this is really the center part of this paragraph. God has come to test you. God's come to test you. And why? That the fear of Him may be before you. And why? That you might not sin. His words have I hidden in my heart, you know, that I might not sin against God. The people stood far off, and Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So much to say about this passage in so little time. Before we tackle this last commandment of coveting, within the broader third point, love your neighbor in what you think and how you think, for even the thinker is fallen. Technically, they call that the noetic effects of the fall, the fallenness of your mind. That's what theologians call it. You need to realize that the mind is fallen. That'll frame a lot of your thinking about thinking or, as one said, metacognition. But before we tackle this commandment about thinking about thinking, about coveting, the phenomenon of Exodus 19 has now returned. Thunder, lightning, instrumentation, smoke. The people are rightly awed by the holiness of God and the rareness of this sight. Moses is allowed to draw nearer to restate it. The whole episode is centered on God testing his people. And that's his prerogative, I hope that you consider yourself among the people of God. If not, as I've already said earlier in the sermon, I hope that you will receive the gospel, young or old or in between, male, female, rich or poor, makes me no difference to your background from where you come. I hope that every single one of you will receive the gospel of Christ and come into the family of God through adoption spiritually. I hope that you will. And then, therefore, as the people of God... I want to say to you that it is absolutely God's prerogative to test you. This testing of you is to promote a healthy fear of Him. For the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Not an unhealthy fear, but a healthy fear. And this testing of you, not you of Him, but Him of you, is designed to help you not to sin, which should be the stated motivation of every people and the person and the people of God, every believer, should it not? God is not to be reinvented in our image or to be trifled with. God is God and we are not. And the ordering of that imaging is important. We must pursue holiness. God is about the business of making us so, for without holiness no one will see the Lord. Hebrews twelve fourteen. So how will you see the Lord without pursuing holiness? This is what God motivates in His people. And that includes, that motivation includes exposing our sin by testing us and reminding us of how much of a fearful thing it is to fall into the hands of a living God and how gracious it is that we will not. For we have an advocate in Christ who will stand in for us. But we only prove not to understand grace if we're flippant about that. We only prove not to understand grace if we're presumptive For we are the ones that see the sinfulness of our sin and make war against it, as that Ryle quote said earlier. The Ten Commandments, in its Tenth Commandment, gets to the heart, the the seatbed of desire, doesn't it? And we are tested in what God has spoken, that we might not sin. And really, that verse 20 is central to understand the Ten Commandments, that you might not sin. Your desires towards sin even need to be thought about. God's Word is not for us to test God. Instead, it's to test us. God's Word is to test us. It's a worshipful book for a worshipful people, and ethically speaking, behaviorally speaking, it is a book that we lay our lives up beside and we treat it like a mirror, as one said, that we might see ourselves more as we are and that we might experience more and more of God's love even as we seek to repent of our sin and walk more closely with our God according to His very moral law. We are to set ourselves up beside this definition of love, not some other definition of love. And we find, again, our need and our Savior meeting our need again and again and again. Again, consulting James Montgomery Boyce now about this 10th commandment. Listen to what he has to say. The 10th commandment about coveting is perhaps the most revealing 
and most devastating of all the commandments because it has to do with the inner attitude of the heart. As we have seen, Jesus took commandments that on the surface seemed to deal with concrete actions and related them to the underlying attitude of the heart. That's the Sermon on the Mount. That's the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. Coveting is about attitude from the beginning. Coveting is about attitude. It's about my attitude. It's about your attitude from the beginning. And this commandment strikes at the heart of our materialist Western culture. He wrote this 30 years ago, but it's very applicable. Mass marketing today is meant to make us dissatisfied or discontented with what we have and covetous of what we do not have. We should understand that when God tells us not to covet, He does not mean that we are not to improve our lot in life. He most certainly may. He does not mean that we are not to work hard or enjoy things and relationships we have. Of course you are to do that. But when we covet, we are dissatisfied with what we have because someone else seems to have more. There's a farmer in the church that has a famous saying, or at least famous to me over the last 20 years, our wanter has outran our needer. That gets to the heart of coveting now, doesn't it? Our wanter has outran our needer. I once heard a pastor say, it was a youth pastor actually that said this, he said, remember that the grass is not greener on the other side, but the grass is greener where it's watered. The enemy would have us to think the grass is greener over there. It's better on the other side. That you should make shipwreck of your life by breaking covenant and going somewhere else. But that's not true. That's a lie. As much as the shadowy serpent was lying to Adam and Eve, so are you being lied to about that? When we covet, we want what another person has, and that may be another person's husband or wife. You know, I mean, to kind of put it in modern terms, all those descriptive words in that verse, another person's house, spouse, kids, household, co-workers, car, truck, tractor, if you think about that. Um, we're in a farming community, and that might, might work. Anything, you could, anything. It's to covet. And then, furthermore, when you become eventually willing to do what it takes to get that object, even if it means violating the Lord's Day, even if it means sinning against another person, taking shortcuts, stealing, when you'll do whatever it takes to get that object or that position or that, that honor, that fame, or if you become just simply fixated with it, internally bitter, bitter with God, if you would be truthful about it, you're convinced God has overlooked you, slighted you, marginalized you. You're convinced that you deserve better. That's coveting. And it cuts at us. But we're not to do this. Instead, as Colossians 3.2 says, we are to be a people, having been born again, filled with the Spirit, we are to be a people that sets our minds on things that are above and not on things that are below here on earth. We think about gaining, and that leads to profaning and claiming pleasures that God has strictly forbade. And it's not to keep you, the forbading is not to keep you from good things, but it's to give you good things. We've got it exactly the opposite, and the sin is in the mind. We think that we know better than God does, and we don't. His moral command is as applicable today as it ever has been. When we think that we know better than God, and we don't, we set ourselves up for many decades of frustration. God's moral law was loving to give, and His moral law is loving for you to keep. We cannot study the moral law without being awakened to our sin. We can't read one commandment and say, well, I kept that one, because we've broken each and every one of them. If we were to take them one by one and go through them, we could substantiate that without a doubt. For each of us, the answer to questions about whether or not we violated commandments 1 through 10 is yes, absolutely we have. This is who we are. Though we are capable of good, we are not good people who occasionally slip up. You're not a good person who occasionally bristles under authority or occasionally looks at bad images on a screen or occasionally feels a little discontented. You and I are rightly defined as God-rejectors, God-reducers, 
God disgracers, and God replacers. We've been rebels, murderers, adulterers, thieves, liars, and enviers. And it is not okay. And you'll never know the forgiveness and freedom from sin until you face up to this reality as a sinner. Just having spat proverbially in the face of God and what we've done, what we've said, and how we thought. And done tremendous harm to our neighbor. How much frustration exists in our communities because of the breaking of a second table of the law and a wanton hatred instead of love of neighbor as yourself. Denial is no way forward. No, it's not, and it's no way out either. Some people are stuck in sin because they refuse to recognize that their sin is the problem, that they are the problem. And Western culture utterly rejects this. It finds this sentiment and this statement, a fact, deeply offensive. Our culture busily promotes self-esteem, Tim Chester said, so that people can feel better about themselves. So to talk about sin is seen as an assault on Project Me. But the irony is, as we promote self-esteem, we become more insecure and more neurotic. And the great gap grows between image and reality. And every day people are falling into this void that's been created by trying to fix the problem without identifying the root. Once we accept the depth of our sin, then we are finally in a position to see the glory of God's solution. And that solution is in Christ Jesus. Let's assess again the Ten Commandments, but this time in light of Christ with the help of Pastor Tim Chester. Jesus, number one, brought the Father glory on earth in all that he did. No other gods beside. Jesus only did what he saw his Father doing, number two. Jesus did not revolt, and he did not misuse the name, number three. Jesus provided a picture of Sabbath recreation, healing independence, number four. Number five, commandment, Jesus loved the Father and even provided for his mother. Number six, Jesus desired to give his life for the very enemies, nailing him to the cross, not murder. Number seven, Jesus gave his life for his bride, that is the church. He did not misuse relations. Number eight, Jesus gave. He didn't take, he was no thief. Number nine, Jesus spoke only truth, never lies. There is nothing false about him, John seven eighteen says. And number 10, as far as coveting, Jesus is content with God's will. Even when that meant the cross, he had the right, more right than any of us ever, to riches and influence and praise on the spot. And yet instead, he freely and joyfully chose to become poor for our good and for his Father's glory. The Jesus became both the lawgiver and the law keeper, the only righteous one the perfect embodiment of God's will, love incarnate as we think about the Advent season. And when we read the Ten Commandments and consider Christ and the definition of love, we only should respond in awe and with worship. And that's precisely what the author of Hebrews is promoting and reflecting back on these verses from Exodus 20. Just take one verse from Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken... And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Our God is a consuming fire. Now I realize all the goodness and beauty is ours in Christ. All this is ours in Christ. His record is now our record. Isn't that good? His record is now our record. That's what 1 John 2, 2 means when it says Christ will be our advocate on that day. We're redeemed by the death and resurrection of Jesus, and we've seen that in the Passover. And we're redeemed by the obedience of Jesus. So today's sermon is not about perfectly fulfilling the law of love yourself, but it is about rightly defining the law of love of your neighbor. It's about being truthful so you can be loving. Could we finally, as a result of today's sermon, define love the way God does? To recap, honor parents, children, fidelity, property ownership, witness, and Christian contentment. Defining love of God and neighbor in these tables of the law will bring us the most joy, the most satisfaction. And it'll help you to glory in a Savior that will make you finally holy. 
for you have been saved to sin no more. Worship in faith for what he will surely do because of faith and by faith. Sam Renahan wrote these words, and I think they're really helpful. He said, for those living under a covenant that is designed to remind its people of their sin, that is the old covenant, that is the covenants with Abraham and Moses and David, for those living under the old covenant that's designed to remind its people of their sin, which is a lot of what you're being reminded of today, there would be nothing more soul-refreshing than to hear of a new covenant whose fundamental promise is the forgiveness of iniquity and the casting of sin into oblivion. God is going to make a new covenant, speaking futuristically, as if they were looking forward to it, and that new covenant isn't like the old one. God is going to make a new covenant that forgives sin. Think of Jeremiah, the prophet, chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. A covenant that places the law inside of you as your guide, not outside of you as your taskmaster. After all of the sin from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Moses to David, at last this new covenant will forgive sins. The hope of the Messiah in the Old Covenant then is nothing other than the New Covenant hope of the Old Covenant. When that future perfect Messiah comes, and we say has now come, He would bring a new covenant with Him and all the people of the Lord would know Him. This is Advent. This is the incarnation of Christ. And our Christ is so special to us. As I shared last week, John Bunyan said, I saw that I needed perfect righteousness to present me without fault before God, and this righteousness was nowhere to be found but in the person of Jesus Christ. As Ebenezer Pemberton wrote, the sacred streams of blood which he shed upon the cursed tree are of infinite value to you and me to wash away the guilt of the greatest sins. It's not enough that Christ is able to save to the uttermost unless He is willing to exercise His almighty power on their behalf. And He is. This is love. Let us pray.